Hello, everybody. I'm Michael Millerman, and this is Millerman Talks. We're live with my good friend, Kenji Hayakawa. He's the author of this book, Echo and Groa, Philosophical Dialogues. Kenji is a good and smart man. I had the pleasure of meeting him as an undergraduate at the University of British Columbia, where he stood out as a original, intelligent, careful, and creative thinker. And he still is really all of those things. If you go read Echo and Grow, it's an amazing book. So I want to give you a chance to talk about it and give us a chance to discuss it. Welcome, Kenji. Thanks for having me. Um, so I suggest if you give a little introduction to the book, we'll go into some of the details. It's a complicated and interesting and very thought-provoking book. So what is Echo and Groa? Okay. Um, it's, well, like all books in philosophy that is written in earnest, I think uh, it's very difficult for uh, anyone to kind of give a, a fair summary of it. Um, but... Um, Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to summarize. So there are three dialogues in the book. They're all set in slightly different time periods. Um, the first dialogue is set in 2011. The second dialogue is set in 1999. And the third, well, it's the third one is not really a dialogue. It's more like um, fragmentary pieces of philosophical musings that have been found in an apartment in Iceland. Uh, and uh, those three pieces represent very different, I mean, they're very loosely related. And this book was just my way of trying to figure out how those different trains of philosophical thought might be related. Uh, I, I guess another useful way of looking at it is that the first first piece, so Groa, is really... Um, the 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 speculative piece, the piece that, for example, responds to Heidegger's challenge in the contributions to philosophy. Uh, we might get into this in more detail, but uh, in the contributions, Heidegger speaks of, as it were, two beginnings of philosophy and the temporal structure that each of those beginnings uh, embody. Uh, and uh, Heidegger, in his own way, uh, struggles with the challenge of trying to articulate what this new beginning looks like, uh, despite the fact that he's acutely aware that uh, he is caught within the, the metaphorics, the language of the first beginning. Uh, so in, in an analogous way, um, I tried to reconcile uh, my thinking and really the, the whole kind of web of language and tropes of thinking that the philosophical tradition uh, is, is trapped in at the moment, uh, and then try to find a way out of this, uh, in, but also in such a direction that it doesn't lead to things like uh, a cult, for example. In other words, I didn't want this to be something that people can only access through a pronouncement of someone in the know. I wanted to open a program of philosophy that is very general and open-ended such that anyone interested in this type of thinking can really write their own work in this style. 
Um, I don't know if this is a good summary, but this is the direction that I wanted the book to take. Okay, so the people should know there are two main characters, Echo and Groa. You yourself do not appear as a character in the dialogue. You don't even write in your own name in the dialogue, right? You have Echo and Groa. And the first conversation is subtitled Nocturnal Thinking. And it takes place in Iceland. It takes place at, the, at night by a fireplace on the outskirts of a village. And so what is, I mean, people obviously don't know, have not, have not having read the book, that it's a very strange, um, it's a very strange chapter because not only do you have unusual discussions for a philosophical dialogue to women at the outskirts of a village in Iceland at night by the fireplace, as opposed to other kinds of dialogues people can think of from the Socratic tradition or elsewhere where you have a different co composition and cast of characters, a different action different um, environment and surroundings. But it's also quite interesting because Echo, the character Echo, presents a model of knowledge, of man, of the university, of what it is to think, of what it is to be and to exist as a human being. And mm -hmm. Groa is a very patient listener to that dialogue. And then when it's Groa's turn to speak, Groa presents a series of dreams of conversations and interactions with animals in dreams, one with the raven, one with an elephant, and one with a whale. And so people may be wondering, what is the significance for you and for us of these themes of dreaming and discoursing with animals and in general of nocturnal thinking? So perhaps you can say a little bit about all of that. It's a big part of the first section of the book yes yes uh yeah i mean uh yeah so let let's talk about the first chapter and those aspects that you highlighted um echo and groa are both the, their names already have certain uh connotations and reverberations in the tradition of mainly western literature um, as you know, Echo is uh, a character in the myth of Echo and Narcissus. Uh, and the curse of Echo is, of course, that uh, they can only say what others say. Um, and in my piece, Echo is an American academic who is quite successful as a scholar of Hegelian uh, philosophy. Um, but as you probably know yourself, Mike, um, a lot of Hegelians today, uh, they're very busy deciphering what Hegel said and uh, very little of contemporary relevance or of true originality uh, comes out from their reading of Hegel um, with very few exceptions. Uh, maybe, you know, Zizek is an exception, uh, but it's even, you know, even with the case of Zizek, it's doubtful to what extent his his truly original insights rely on his real, uh, reading of Hegel or whether he uses Hegel as merely an accessory to embellish uh, some of his uh, analyses. Um, but in any case, uh, I wanted to have Echo represent this, the past of philosophy as it were. Um, it's also good to note that uh, in Heidegger's contributions, one of the 
modes of uh, being of the first beginning is clang or anklang, sorry, anklang. And anklang is kind of difficult to, again, translate to uh, bring out what Heidegger wants that word to say. But I think one way of rendering it is echo. Uh, you, it's, it's, a, it's an echo of being. Uh, and again, uh, from that point of view, I wanted echo to stand for the first beginning. Whereas groa, groa in, is Icelandic for grow, uh, and it represents growth, uh, obviously. So loosely, I, I wanted this to loosely again resonate with Heidegger's notion of the sprung, the, the leap. Uh, and uh, again, what's, what's good about Groa is that instead of staking out a position external to philosophy, she is more interested in growing philosophy in the sense of not 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 in the sense of you know uh tinkering a machine that has already been completed but it's more about perceiving what philosophy has done as merely a preparation for some other type of growth to happen um there there are other think, aspects of uh yeah is it fair to say that Echo and Groa then is a dialogue between the first beginning and another beginning of philosophy, or is that too much forcing it into the Heideggerian mold, no, or is that no. an accurate representation? That's that's a very accurate representation. And so, in your understanding, in the first chapter, is nocturnal thinking then the first entryway into what another beginning of philosophy might be? And how do you see that as being like or unlike? Heidegger's own presentation of what another beginning might be, because certainly you do not have in Heidegger's presentation of the possibility of another beginning dialogues or, I mean, if you can even call them that, they're so interesting the way you wrote them. In some cases, it's just an exchange of questions between the Raven and Groa. It's not even clear whether that could be characterized as a dialogue. It's some sort of something, um, but mm -hmm. maybe even dialogue itself is a relic of the first beginning of philosophy. So is nocturnal thinking for you the entryway into another beginning of philosophy? Mm -hmm. uh, well, that was my hope. I don't know if I elaborated to the point where I'm actually convincing readers that this is the this is one way of beginning philosophy in a different way. Um, but that was the hope, uh, and uh, I think to even talk about nocturnal thinking as the other beginning, we need to first be clear on what what what, what it what the other beginning is. Um, and I know you developed a course on the contributions. So perhaps that would be helpful for listeners to take a look at. Um, but uh, my understanding of Heidegger's struggle with the history of being and the other beginning is that it is well, I have a Derridian understanding of it. So the Derridian understanding of that task that Heidegger spells out is we are caught, caught on the one hand in the logos that was instituted at the beginning of philosophy, uh, or rather being is caught in logos. And logos has certain fundamental features uh, that circumscribe thinking. Um, to the point where when we say thinking, 
the word does not really say anything beyond what logos uh, prescribes or circumscribes it to say. Uh, and uh, the task of the of beginning philosophy anew or finding the other beginning is to again take this leap where another yeah again a, a, another way of thinking is disclosed in the words we we have traditionally used to uh, express uh, kind of logocentric or um, philosophical concepts like philosophical concepts proper um, it's very hard to it's very hard to encapsulate what what, what, what the challenge is that Heidegger, the, the challenge that Heidegger lays out, but that, that's kind of the challenge. Um, and once we understand the challenge as uh, one of expressing a way of thinking that, that expressing a way of thinking using words that Logos has appropriated, but in such a way that the words break free of what Logos prescribes them to say, uh, then we are seeing possible openings towards another beginning. Um, I don't know if Would this like, is... Yeah, no, that's, help, that's helpful. So people uh, who are watching this or listening should get a rough understanding that Heidegger and a project that you're working on and working within is about trying to think newly than we're used to thinking over the last history of metaphysics, roughly from Heraclitus to Nietzsche, if you make it like an episode like Heidegger does. But how do you do that using the words drawn from the tradition? How do you give the old terms a new, not just a new twist, but have them be like keys that open another door, a door that we have only become aware of at the end of the first history of metaphysics or the first history of philosophy. And in your book, again, for the people who are watching who haven't read it in the first chapter this happens among other things through three dialogues or again depictions of interactions with animals in dreams so would you like to go over or could you present for us or say something about each of those dreams the dream with the raven with the elephant and with the whale sure uh yeah again it's I mean, I, I can see that you are struggling to characterize these things, um, these passages, and I'm struggling too because it just presupposes a lot, uh, including an understanding of what this challenge is. I mean, the reason why I didn't start with those dreams is because I, I felt the need to at least lay out the challenge that cybernetics poses. Okay, so let's. You're you're exactly right. I'm so used to thinking already about the other beginning, given yes. all of the legwork you know I have done and you've done independently on these questions. So let's take a step back. That's mm -hmm. uh, well chastised, and uh, I think correct observation. And maybe you can say then what? Maybe you can say more about cybernetics. How, in what sense does Echo represent a cybernetic understanding of the world? What is cybernetics? Why, in this view, is everything cyberspace, like he says? What is the picture of man in the world, according to Echo, according to the first beginning, according to our inherited metaphysics, as you see it? Yeah, and this is... So, Echo's position has not has very little to do with uh, what, what I think about the world. It's just what the world presents itself as to, to us today. Uh, so, what, what is this presentation of the world? 
Well, the presentation of the world is something like the following. Uh, insofar as thinking and knowledge goes, uh, science will give you the best uh, directions, orientations, tools to think about pretty much anything in the world. Uh, and then technology is the way to interact with the world. Uh, and then science and technology in this symbiotic relation of representing the world, extracting regularities and rules, uh, sometimes formalized mathematically in other areas such as art criticism or history or religious studies, etc. Uh, these rules uh, are represented in words uh, in the form of isms and uh, just concepts with specific definitions, etc. Uh, or they might be represented in the form of a narrative. So not so much individual concepts as just a, a, a program or even an, a kind of a pseudo algorithm. Um, so there are various techniques for representing the world, which science and uh, just academic activity in general exploits to uh, inform people. Um, and in this world, everything is basically information. And all that exists for thinking, to, all that remains for thinking to do is to collect and analyze this information. And then all there is for action, human action, is to use that analysis to intervene in this world of information and manipulate information. Uh, and Heidegger thought that this type of uh, not just understand, it's, it's deeper than understanding of being because it's not something that individual humans can do anything about. It's just the way the world is today. Um, and Heidegger realized that the majority of works written in philosophy have fed into the creation of this world. Uh, and he also realized that in this world, thinking becomes through and through technological. And he called this regime of thinking that has become thoroughly technological cybernetics. Uh, this is a very idiosyncratic way of using the word cybernetics. It's a philosophical usage. However, it's, I think, an appropriate way of characterizing the the as it were, the true end of philosophy, which is that it becomes cybernetics. And not only is philosophical thinking cybernetics, but the world that has developed according to the principles of Western philosophy have culmin uh, have, has become a cybernetic world, a, a world dominated by technological thinking. Kenji, if I could just interject for one minute, is... Yes machination or machenschaft analogous here to cybernetics? Is that another term that a person can use or do you see those things as distinct? Oh, machenschaft would be the that aspect of cybernetics that has to do with action. So where there was action, now there is manipulation. Okay, so the world has been interpreted or shown itself as organized information a scientific approach, algorithms, calculation, and 
that is how the world presents itself to us now. And that's reflected in philosophical thinking, which sees, how did you put it as its goal, this organization of information? Is yes. that correct? Okay, go on. Sorry, I just wanted to clarify about the Machenschaft term, because when I was reading about cybernetics, I was wondering whether that's equivalent. Sure. So the first part of Groa lays out the consequence of cybernetics on the various traditional areas of philosophy. It starts off with ethics uh, and goes through uh, religion, science, art, history and politics, and then finally philosophy. Uh, and in each case, uh, Echo stakes out a cybernetic position uh, or a cybernetic approach to art, to politics, etc. cetera. Uh, and what underlies all of these approaches is kind of a fundamental nihilism uh, concerning divisions and distinctions that we might make or uh, a priority that one position might have vis-a-vis -vis others. Um, so an example is uh, a cybernetic approach to ethics basically says that as long as we are functioning and as long as we are, our feelings are respected and our material well-being uh, is protected, uh, there's really nothing more that one is prescribed to do uh, or called to do. Uh, one simply lives one's life by manipulating information according to the information one gains through various channels. Uh, and that's really all there is to life. And then one uh, just passes away uh, after 80 years, 90 years, 100 years of uh, individual existence. Uh, and uh, so that is, that, that is kind of the position that Echo represents. And I've given it the strongest possible presentation that I can give. Um, and I should also note that I'm very, I have no problem with, you know, people who think that cybernetics is great and they should just continue existing according to this technological way of being. Uh, but it's just that when it comes to new avenues for philosophical thought, this culmination, basically, if you think it through, it 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 implies that philosophy has done its job and it's 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 no longer needed one of the things that echo begins discussing right away in the dialogue is the significance of death for human life and he seems to he seems to be a maybe materialist is too strong a word i don't know but he does not believe that there's a continuity between life and the afterlife he thinks life ends for man when you die and all forms of living past your death including living through your ancestors or living through your work living through your legacy do not really hold much weight for him so mm -hmm. is it your view that i mean in in your understanding does the cybernetic presentation of the world how does it treat, I mean, is that accurately capturing the cybernetic view of the world that there's no existence after life, that life itself is a technical project. And I reason, the reason I'm cautious in calling it a materialism, even though that's on one hand, what the temptation is to identify it with. On the other hand, Echo gives very competent expositions of Hegelian philosophy, which obviously is not reducible to any type of vulgar materialism. 
So I was wondering if you can address those things. And one last thing I just want to make clear or ask you about, at least, is that the nihilism that Echo represents does not come across as a destructive nihilism. It's not the nihilism of wanting to burn everything down. It's not a revolutionary nihilism. It is just a acknowledgement of ultimate meaninglessness, sort of, as concerns the limits of human life. So yes, I'll probably ask uh -huh. three or four different questions there, but maybe you can comment on some of them. Well, I, I thought those were more just very good encapsulations of Echo's position rather than a question. I mean, I agree with what you just said. Uh, right. Well, let me... Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what your questions implied. That's, that's basically, you know. Okay, some people might think philosophy at the end of its first history or philosophy mm -hmm. when it's reached this nihilistic phase, they may think more of Nietzsche than of Hegel, for example. They All may right. think more of a, they may think more of a Nietzschean nihilism than of mm -hmm. this sort of cybernetic nihilism. So it's just right. a nice point of, a nice point of contrast, I think. Right. So, yes, um, Hegel is another beast, and the reason why the second dialogue deals with Hegel is because I think Hegel's logic is still worth reading and trying to reinterpret, uh, trying, uh, and it's worth trying to reinterpret it in a way uh, that has not ha has in a way that is not captured by cybernetics completely, um, but a certain dimension of Hegel. So let me step back. What, what, is, what is Hegel's basic approach to philosophy? Well, it's a dialectical approach. Um, and the dialectical approach is supposed to be a distinct approach that philosophy has traditionally been, uh, has traditionally excelled at, uh, as opposed to an analytical approach, which is more to do with the exact and empirical sciences. Um, and in a dialectical approach, what we're interested in is not the things that are represented by thinking, but the movement of thinking itself. Uh, and according to Hegel's uh, outlook, thinking is an immaterial spiritual activity that does not have a spatio-temporal location, for example. Uh, and therefore, whatever that happens in thinking automatically overlaps with all the other things that thinking is capable of doing. Uh, and dialectical, dialectical thinking just means taking seriously the fact that whatever we think at a later point in time uh, or in different kind of modes and distinctions all ultimately overlap. So we need to think through them as one rather than as uh, purely distinct elements of thinking. Um, and the hope for philosophy, I think, was, and this goes right up to the present, uh, the hope for philosophy, including people like, for people like Derrida, Zizek, um, maybe even Dugin, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that, but uh, the hope was that this dialectical aspect of philosophy that takes seriously the idea that philosophy can disclose uh, the being of thinking, or the way thinking exists to us uh, is itself 
in a way undermined by cybernetics. Because cybernetics basically says thinking is just one kind of information. And while it was helpful that Kant, Hegel, Heidegger, and others have disclosed certain um, ways in which thinking exists and have given certain speculative and abstract accounts of what thinking might be, uh, they were just preparing the ground for a more precise scientific and technological understanding of thinking where finally we can accurately categorize the different ways in which we think uh, and then potentially even intervene on these things such that uh, we know how to intervene in the brain or we know how to manipulate another person's thinking through words and other stimuli. Uh, and uh, eventually the goal is to uh, reduce thinking to information processing. Um, and uh, Echo again takes this very seriously. And I think, th and this is just from my view is that we should take that seriously, not in the sense of seeing it as a threat or seeing it as something that we need to vanquish, but just to, first of all, fully accept the consequences of that uh, and understand why it is so difficult to do philosophy when that is the most promising horizon uh, that is before us as a, as a collective. You just said that in your view, it's not something we have to see as a threat or something that we have to vanquish. Mm -hmm. But I think there are other people who have been exposed to Heidegger and have been exposed to the critique of cybernetic thinking who do see this scientific technological net that's cast itself over human life as something that we need to cut ourselves out of. And that the various processes at the forefront or seemingly at the forefront, like, for example, developments in artificial intelligence and Neuralink, maybe Elon Musk as sort of the figurehead for some of these types of things, represents the further and further the encroachment of cybernetics and the domination of cybernetics. So mm -hmm. on one hand, it seems you're saying that for you, this is primarily an invitation to think about the meaning and significance and task and promise of philosophy. But on the other hand, for Echo, you said he went through ethics, religion, science, art, history, and politics before getting to philosophy. So how should we think about the ethical, the political, the aesthetic, the historical dimensions of the dominance of cybernetics? Do you have sympathy with, or maybe that's not the right question to ask, but isn't opposition to cybernetics and a sort of thoughtful resignate, not resignation, but you know, a thoughtful letting be of cybernetics versus a rigorous war against it? How do we make sense of that situation when it begins to touch on our ethical and political life, for example? I mean, not to mention the other categories, for example, the aesthetic and the historical. Right. So this, um, this question itself can easily be framed in a combative or uh, anxious uh, narrative or context. Um, in other words, um, by asking, you know, how should we think about the implications of cybernetics in those, let's call them intellectual areas, vis-a-vis uh, -vis our practical life, 
uh, we're already asking, well, we, we seem to be presupposing that on the one hand, there is something to practical life beyond cybernetics that is being steadily undermined by a cybernetic mode of thinking that is germinating in the more intellectual domains of life. Uh, and I think this just gets the history of this whole cybernetic uh, dominance of the world uh, kind of upside down. Um, in fact, technologies and you know the science that made the development of these technologies possible came first. People started mm -hmm. living as technological beings. And then later, uh, art, religion, and so on have caught up to the idea that maybe even intellectual domains like art and religion are, are not, not only not you know, immune to cybernetics, but actually can be reformed in a very radical way uh, if they also welcome cybernetics. So this also explains the kind of explosion of new religions that seemingly have no connection with the traditional uh, major religions. Um, or in art, there is an explosion of aut automatism, uh, Dadaism, the idea that the intention of the artist is not sacred or not privileged. Uh, that art, I mean, for example, in John Cage, um, the only distinction between music and sound is one's capacity to understand a given uh, kind of sonic element as music. I mean, if, we, if one does not have the capacity to understand that element as music, then it presents itself as sound, but merely by willing to take it as music, it becomes music. Uh, so in, the, in, this, in this way, the intellectual domains of life have appropriated cybernetics and in a very complicated relationship become cybernetic themselves, became cybernetic themselves. And then, you know, it's just, it, it, that's, that's where we are. I mean, uh, the, this, this world is just dominated by this technological way of being. And it's, it's just, for me, the only interesting question is what is there for philosophy to do? that is not deceiving itself or deluding itself uh, into thinking that it is somehow outside cybernetics. Um, but nocturnal thinking, as represented by Groa, seems to be outside of the... How can I put this? Groa and Echo to a certain extent, because Echo mentions Socrates and James Joyce as and Bjork and some other people I haven't heard of as Angela potential Grossman. Angela Grossman as people who are outside of or who escape somehow the bonds of cybernetics or maybe escape is again too active uh, a verb to use there, but who people who fall outside of the net of cybernetics and mm -hmm. that there's some hope that Joyce and Socrates as opposed to, people should know, Aristotle, for example. It's not only Hegel who represents the cybernetic approach to the world. Aristotle gets uh, named as not a culprit, but as a figure who should be understood in cybernetic 
terms and the university also as the organization of information. And yet you have figures like Socrates and Joyce. And you, of course, have written a dialogue. I can't call it a Socratic dialogue, but Socrates appears in the dialogue. So it's called Socratic. And you've done much work on Joyce as well. So clearly there's some desire to, I mean, it seems to me that there's some desire to see what's on the other side of cybernetics, what's available outside of a cybernetic world interpretation. And I was wondering, what is it in us or what is it in you? What is it in Socrates and in Joyce and in Angela Grossman and in Bjork that has the ability to pass beyond the prevailing world interpretation without wanting to annihilate it, but also without being captured by it? Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the reasons why I decided to write three dreams instead of you know, giving a, a, an account of a post-cybernetic mode of thinking uh, is partly because, um, okay, let me step back. First of all, I can't answer your question. And the reason is post-cybernetic thinking is something to be performed. Uh, it's not something to be packaged by a label uh, that describes what it is, and then you can put it on Amazon and have it sent to people's homes. Uh, Post-cybernetic thinking is fundamentally something that is contemporary, so nobody has figured it out. We are performing it to a certain extent, uh, but we are also very much struggling to perform it well, as it were. So if you hark back, if, if you go back to Plato's dialogues or even Socrates, they were not giving an account of how Socratic thinking works, for example. They were simply performing philosophical thinking in a Socratic spirit. So in the same way, nocturnal thinking is an invitation to think in a certain spirit that is in some sense post-cybernetic, but more importantly, it is an attempt to do philosophy while fully acknowledging and being aware of the dominance of technological thinking and how much of what passes as philosophy today is merely a species of technological thinking. So the question becomes, well, okay, that's all fine, but how does, you know, I, I mean, maybe people still want to know, well, how, how does nocturnal thinking performatively take us beyond cybernetics? And again, my, my answer to that would be, there's, there's no, first of all, there's no reason why nocturnal thinking would take you beyond cybernetics, so much as enable philosophy to think well in a way that doesn't get recaptured by a cybernetic discourse or technological discourse. Uh, and then uh, the other point I want to touch on is what's, what's distinct about Socrates vis-a-vis -vis Aristotle is that for Socrates, it was crucial to do two things. One was to converse with an other whom claimed to have knowledge and Socrates claims always in those early dialogues, at least, uh, 
to not have knowledge. And it is very important for him to have a non-epistemic dialogue. In other words, it's not a dialogue that uh, imparts knowledge. It's a dialogue that is performed in the full awareness that one does not know anything about what one is talking about. Uh, and then on the, on the other side, however, uh, Socrates also mentions in the Apology that he has merely followed the guidance of his inner uh, daimonion, like daimon. And this, this inner something is, uh, in Equan Groa, it is interpreted as a nocturnal being. Uh, it is a nocturnal force within us that, to a certain extent, guides the way we 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 think. Although we need to choose to be guided by that. Uh, so these aspects of Socrates were resonant with the the main strategies in this book to do philosophy well in a cybernetic world. Uh, and the, and the strategy is to explore the possibility of dialogue with those beings that have traditionally been completely neglected in philosophy insofar as their capacity to have a dialogue uh, is concerned. Uh, so those are other animal species predominantly. Uh, and then uh, also the night has traditionally been unexplored in the sense that it's been used as a catalyst for thinking, or it has been used as a metaphor for ultimately enhancing thinking in a wide awake technological mode. Uh, but the world of night itself uh, essentially has not been entered into uh, performatively uh, in traditional philosophy. So these you were the, sort of... You give the examples of Descartes, Swedenborg, and Kant all having recourse to a dream vision, but only in order to spring back to waking life on the back of that vision without really probing where it comes from and what it means. Yes. Uh, yes, and very few, I think very few people have, I mean, very few people have really uh, taken the leap, to use a Heideggerian term, taken the leap into the nocturnal world and dwelled in the nocturnal world. Uh, they, and for me, Björk in music, for example, I mean, I would have added John Cage as well, but uh, I, I guess my problem with John Cage is that it's just a, you know, an accident of history that he wasn't living in a time when high technology was dominating uh, music to the extent that, uh, you know, it is dominating music in, in Björk's time. Uh, but uh, so for that reason, I, I, I just you know, used Björk as a, as a reference point. But, you know, she's an example of someone who embraces technological uh, art and she does not see it as a threat. She actually revels in it, but she's also aware that there are regions of uh, artistic expression 
that can be accessed through technology, but is also in a way authentically still artistic. Uh, it's not just captured by a technological way of understanding music, which is a, a whole new topic. Uh, and you know, musicians have, at least since the time of uh, Pierre Schaeffer, for example, in the 40s, uh, with the advent of electronic music, uh, musicians have, uh, have continually struggled with the question of what is left for music to do when anything can be an instrument and we can just create music uh, I mean, anyone can create music. Music has become, uh, has become anonymous. The human subject has little role to play in music, etc. Uh, same with the lit literature. Uh, I mean, Joyce is, James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake is possibly the only work of literature out there that has given a, a sustained and passionate presentation of what it is like to dream. Uh, one of the reasons why, for example, if you look at the scholarship on Finnegan's Wake, you can clearly see the confusion of the academics because their cybernetic way of approaching a work, that is looking at a work, finding regularities, and then summarizing those regularities, uh, and then presenting their findings as a kind of a, again, a, 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 it's, a, it's a very dominating kind of, approach to a work, uh, you categorize a work in this way, this kind of analysis is unavailable uh, for Finnegan's Wake, and therefore academics are thrown into chaos. They don't know what to say. Uh, some try to emulate Joyce, others try to force Finnegan's Wake into a traditional analysis of literary techniques, etc. cetera. Uh, but all of them just fail to capture something very crucial about the experience of reading the text. Uh, I think it's I hope... echo. Sorry, I think it's echo in the dialogue who says the university as such has become a type of cybernetic institution. So academic scholarship would almost be the uh, the paradigm of cybernetic capture of something that is not capturable. I think the same can be said of a lot of scholarship on Heidegger. Certainly, in my case, working on Dugan, for whom nocturnal thinking is an important characteristic. He's got a book called In Search of the Dark Logos. He draws on Gilbert Durand's Sociology of the Imagination, where you have regimes of nocturnal modes of imagination as opposed to the diurnal. So there too, though, it's not easily uh, appropriable or understandable by the institutions of, uh, by, you know, by the cybernetic institutions, by the academia, by the scholarship. I just want to add too, for people who are listening, that Joyce is not just an example for you of somebody who falls outside of the prevailing mode of world interpretation but you also have more direct how could you put it involvement with Joyce's life and with his work do you want to say anything about that or no just so that people understand your involvement with Joyce as a figure uh well I mean I can mention the fact that I used to volunteer at a small chemist in Dublin called Sweeney's Chemist um, it's a chemist that features in chapter five of Ulysses. And it's one of the few locations in Dublin that has been preserved as it was when Joyce was writing his works. Um, we hosted readings of Joyce's works every day. We welcomed tourists from all around the world. Uh, a lot of local Dublin 
regulars also came to those readings. And of course, uh, uh, after the reading, we would go to our uh, the office, as we refer to it, uh, just a, a pub. Uh, and we will have our obligatory pint as we talk about what we read uh, for that week and so on. Um, so that's just to say that uh, you know, reading Joyce is commonly presented as it's kind of analogous to a very particular way of approaching like Hegel or Heidegger. Uh, people think Joyce is a genius, which to an extent he was, but then they think that the text should be approached as if it's some kind of sacred work and you know, we should bow down to the genius of Joyce uh, and take every line seriously, etc. But uh, if you actually read the work, and also I highly recommend uh, uh, performance by the Irish National Radio Station, the RTE. Um, if you just go to Google, put in RTE Ulysses podcast, oh, sorry, not podcast, radio. There is a, a brilliant performance. Once you listen to that performance, you, it, it becomes very quickly apparent that Joyce was just having a lot of fun writing this book, and it's simply wrong to take everything in this sober um, Apollonian way. Uh, you, you should you should very much look at Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake as Dionysian works. Um, so that's that that would be the main kind of points, and uh, just to encourage listeners to read Joyce. Uh, if you haven't yet, then you are missing out. I can say that because you know. Um, unlike other authors, which in my view are optional, Joyce really defines 20th century literature. Um, and a lot of what people have done after Joyce are, uh, to use a Whiteheadian way of looking at it, uh, it's just footnotes to Joyce or an uh, uh, inferior copy of what Joyce already has done. I think you had said to me at some point that Sweeney's was one of the last remaining pockets of Dublin city life that itself, to rephrase it in terms of our conversation now, hadn't been captured by processes of science and technology and, and hadn't been captured by the system, so to speak. So is mm -hmm. that a good way of looking at it? And what other kinds of practices, like a reading group in a location like that, or listening to a piece of music by Bjork or something, do you think give us a practical outlet from the world of capture. So someone I used to read a long time ago, before I knew a lot of scandalous details about his life, which will bracket the question of how important that is, but um, he had the idea of a temporary autonomous zone. In other words, little pockets that fall outside of systematic capture. And it sounds like besides just thinking through the meaning of philosophy in our end of philosophical history or in our age of cybernetics, it also is important to think about human interaction, about love, about experiences, about how to live in a way, not just think in a way that is not, okay, suffocated would be my loaded term, but that is not um, enmeshed in that structure. So when I hear you talk about the reading group and Joyce and this location, it all seems perfectly suited to be a model of nocturnal living, so to speak, outside mm. of the systems. And just wondering if you have other thoughts on, is that the way you see it? And what else do you think is a practice that, that people can, not, not, not like that you're recommending practices, but where do you see other pockets like that in the world today for nocturnal living, so to speak? Uh, well, first of all, I don't think authentic uh, pockets of 
post-cybernetic uh, living uh, exist uh, in in this world. Um, they're they're mostly just apparent. I mean, for example, it's true that Sweeney's is not captured by a much more kind of packaged and you know accessible um, version of Dublin. Uh, which has become, you know, constructed really over the last 20 years, uh, where it's basically no longer Dublin. I, I just call it Dubneyland. You know, uh, you can go to an Irish pub attraction, or you can go to a literary museum attraction, uh, but those are no longer things that people, you know, uh, that those are not not the same as you know pubs and public institutions that were part of Dublin life. Uh, it's, it's, these, are these are commodities that are produced for the consumption of foreign tourists. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is a different question. Uh, people tend to judge against those things, but I think it's a, always a double-edged sword because it also brings in uh, you know, people from the outside uh, who, if we navigate this properly, then I think this could be the beginning of something, uh, a different way for Dublin to exist. So it's it's not it's not. I'm not saying that this is a bad thing, uh, but it's it's just apparent that it, it's just a, a surface phenomenon that Sweeney's happens to have been preserved the way uh, it was back back in the day. Uh, and the reason why uh, the reason I say that is because people won't be coming into Sweeney's if the the simulacrum part of Dublin did not exist. I mean, no. And arguably, Joyce wouldn't be as vigorously read in Sweeney's today as it would have been if none of the other fake Dublin did not exist. Uh, so there is this complicated relationship of supplement where the the simulated Dublin or Dubneyland supplements Sweeney's and makes it what it is today. Uh, what, what I would recommend to people who are interested in breaking out of cybernetics, although I would also question the desire to break out or this urge that one might feel to break, break out, uh, I would question that itself. I mean, why would you want to break out? You want to think about that seriously first. But let's say you want to break out. Um, look for, I mean, it's also, it depends on what you do. I mean, if you're an artist, if you make music or if you write literature, then the way you want to break out is going to be very different from if you want to engage in philosophical thinking. So I can only speak for philosophers. But uh, if you want to do philosophy and you're looking for a concrete practical uh, way to think well in a cybernetic world, then I would suggest taking seriously the omissions that have been made in the history of philosophy and then just stake your, uh, you know, place your bets in in those omitted areas. That that's that's exactly what I did. I mean, nocturnal thinking is not a metaphor in my case. It's literally thinking in the night. I mean, it's the the dream is part of the dialogue because for me, dreaming is a way of thinking that has just been ignored or distorted uh, or have been used 
merely as a means to an end uh, and has never been considered as something intrinsically worth elaborating. Uh, and it's the same with other animals. I mean, ravens and elephants and uh, whales all have high, uh, they, they have a very high capacity for intelligence. Uh, and this is, you know, recently been increasingly become kind of a convincing position to hold within the cognitive ethology literature. Uh, if you, if you want, once you acknowledge that there are beings out there that live radically different lives to Homo sapiens, and once you realize that philosophers have never seriously tried to imagine uh, a dialogue with those beings, then you start to wonder, well, is there some necessary connection between the exclusion of those beings from the philosophical discourse and the way cybernetics is dominating today? Um, we treat animals as manipulable beings uh, and we treat them in a very nihilistic way as well. What if this way of treating them is counterproductive to philosophy? And what, what if we should treat them instead as part of a broader society of beings where uh, they disclose new ways of thinking for us through the medium of dialogue? Uh, so those were some of the speculative bets that I've placed in this book. But there's no guarantee that those will pay dividends. Uh, and this is why, you know, I want to be cautious of this idea that there are some people out there who already know what it is like to break out of cybernetics or think philosophically within cybernetics uh, without being captured by it, etc. Uh, I don't know. And I don't think there's no quick and easy answer to, to how to do that. You treat all of these topics with great sensitivity in the book. I remember one exchange between Echo and Groa where I think it's Echo who suggests that animals themselves perhaps escape cybernetics or are non-cybernetic creatures. And therefore, once we begin to think about animals, then we have quick access, a quick escape. By thinking about the raven or the whale, you're outside of cybernetics immediately. And then, of course, the other dialogue partner says, well, no, there's still cybernetic creatures. There may be something that we can learn from them that's different from what we know, but it would be too quick and too easy and not correct to slot them outside of technology to consider only the human being a technological creature. So that's something that you treat with sensitivity. Something else that I think is pretty funny, but also pretty important is the transition from what is discovered in nocturnal thinking or not even discovered, but the intimations mm -hmm. and hints and impressions of nocturnal thinking and their translation into the diurnal or into the daytime, into the cybernetic. So for example, in the dream dialogue with the elephant. And by the way, people should understand it's not just the dialogue. There's a becoming elephant. There's ones regarding oneself as an, as an elephant in the dream on the basis of Descartes. So even to call it a dialogue is really not just to simplify, but to distort what's actually happening in that exchange, which is all very important. But, uh, but I think it's Echo who suggests branding discourse, dream discourse with elephants as what is it, loxodontology, with reference to the Latin name of that elephant species. So the idea that you're going to take the dream world, access it, bring it back up, brand it, 
and run with it, like you said, sell it on Amazon, I think is uh, not only funny, but also pretty important because one of the things that Echo mentions about his turn or his openness to nocturnal thinking is he says, I used to, I used to just live the grind of the student who has bills to pay and nobody's reading the books and this whole problem, right? And the nocturnal, in some sense, is an escape from the drudgery of mm -hmm. having to think in the daytime, from having to pay your bills and have an audience and sell your books. Like I'm, a, I'm of two minds whether I should even send people to work to my programs where they can buy them online because it's a really a real conflict, truly, right? Between mm -hmm. wanting to think and wanting to, you know, thrive and survive in the regular world. And that's something that comes out in the book itself. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and this I really learned most of all from Derrida. I think when I was working on my studies of Heidegger, Derrida was the biggest insight for me here. But the need, and this addresses Lonesome George's question about return to a certain extent, it's the need to operate on the threshold, to go back and forth like you're crossing a border from the nocturnal to the diurnal and to sort of be always engaged in, <laughs> smuggling would be a broad, uh, a crude way of seeing it, but translation of bringing ideas and not just ideas, but again, impressions, insights, tastes, flavors, and all, all of that back and forth across the border. So besides the conceptual geography of doing that, you also, I know, have written about translation in philosophical texts. You yourself are a translator and you've studied these issues and these questions from many different perspectives. So maybe you could say a little bit about that, about the liminality between the nocturnal and the diurnal and translation of ideas, both in that geography and just in philosophical speech generally. Right. So to begin with, I think you've given a very eloquent description of how a Deridian might understand what's going on in especially the elephant dialogue. Uh, however, I would caution first by saying that the way you characterize it is exactly technological because you've actually very neatly laid out the schema that could be used to interpret what's going on. Uh, and then this, this gives you a set of rules. For example, remain at the, the border between day and night, uh, you know, engage in these strategic exchanges, what, what you called, you know, smuggling, which I, I like, like it, it is kind of smuggling nocturnal elements into the day and vice versa. Uh, these are all fine, but you're already in a cybernetic mode because you're following rules that have been prescribed by a schema. Uh, this is something that philosophy does all the time. And that's the true struggle, is to think in a way that does not fall into a kind of an automatism of following rules or uh, respecting a pre-given schema. Um, and uh, the, the other thing is that, again, the becoming elephant of echo is not this kind of you know, pseudo leftist, like, oh, I take myself to be an elephant, therefore I'm, I'm an elephant. It's more like you literally become other animals when you kind of become self-conscious in a dream and you look at your body and you're not a human, you're something else. Uh, in that situation, you actually are more of an elephant than a human if you become an elephant in a dream. Um, so I want to, again, caution I want to caution against an interpretation of dreams that takes it merely as a metaphor for understanding 
what might take place in the day. Uh, I, I would, again, I would encourage listeners, readers to take these traditionally uh, neglected regions, I mean, neglected by philosophy, uh, take those regions as literally as possible and think through what it is like to think in those regions. Uh, and one of those things that uh, I've discovered when thinking in dreams in a nocturnal mode uh, is that you you become what you, like there's no distinction between appearance and reality as well. Like, you become an elephant if you find yourself as an elephant in a dream. It's not like you're a human and then you take yourself to be an elephant. Uh, so that's just a kind of a asterisk to what, what you just said. Um, but moving on to translation, that's a whole new bag of uh, <laughs> problems as it were. Um, but uh, I mean, I guess, you know, as a, as a friend, I can tell you that uh, I've just, my publisher in Japan has just uh, released a new book. Uh, it's a Japanese translation of uh, a book by Yanis Varoufakis. Uh, it's called The Global Minotaur. Uh, and uh, it basically is a work of economic history with great literary ingenuity, uh, which was the reason why the book was so attractive to me as a translator, even though it's already about 10 years old. Uh, it was first published in 2011. Um, but uh, my publisher you know, gracefully agreed to get the copyright and start working on a translation of this book. It took about, it took almost two years for us to go from initial contract to publication. So it was a huge project. We're very glad that it's out. I've tried out numerous uh, innovations in translation, which unfortunately it's very hard to, it's very difficult to convey uh, unless you understand how Japanese works and have a little bit of background knowledge of some of the conventions that Japanese translators typically follow. Um, but, uh, and then another thing I can note is at the moment I'm revising a manuscript, uh, which is a Japanese translation of a book on climate change and possible solutions to it. Uh, and it's written by Noam Chomsky and Robert Polin. Uh, this, this work is more, uh, I see it more as a contribution to politics and to solving practical problems we have as opposed to something motivated by uh, uh, kind of a intrinsically aesthetic uh, challenge. Um, it, it's a fairly straightforward work to translate. Um, but uh, in the course of translating those works, one interesting thing that I am, uh, I have kind of come to realize and appreciate, uh, which also ties into what we've been discussing up to now, namely, you know, cybernetics and how that's really just, you know, dominating over everything we do. Um, I think one of the, yeah, I think it's Lonesome George, he pointed out that GPT-3 is making, you know, traditionally, quote unquote, creative, uh, 
works in the in the area of language, uh, basically, you know, making them automatable, uh, if that's a word, uh, and that's particularly true with translation. Um, it, so, uh, literally over the last one or two years automatic translation tools have become so much better to the point where it beats most mediocre human translators. Uh, and moreover, the way they beat those mediocre human translators is, is they beat humans in a particularly crushing way. So human translators, ex especially in the English-Japanese language pair, struggle to uh, make the translated text clear and accessible. This is a, a major challenge, uh, among other reasons, because English and Japanese don't share linguistic roots. And therefore, one term in English uh, typically do not have a term in Japanese that comfortably corresponds um, so there, there are very, there are very many different reasons why clarity and accessibility are so hard to achieve in a translation from English to Japanese. But what the machine does is the algorithm basically is trained on data taken mainly from internet data and also scans of books written. So the data is already incredibly high quality, and on both sides most of the data uh, come from works that people find highly accessible and clearly written. So the machine already has a very robust sense of what an accessible and clear translation looks like. So it's particularly crushing for humans who are struggling for accessibility and clarity to see that a text generated in five seconds by DeepL or GPT-3 uh, gives you the text that you would have struggled to create after like 20 minutes of uh, various trials and errors. Uh, and then the question becomes, well, in that situation, especially for nonfiction translators who, you know, readers ex uh, expect to uh, kind of, re readers expect nonfiction to be clear and accessible. They don't have additional aesthetic uh, expectations that they might have for fiction. Uh, in that kind of environment, how can non-fiction translators contribute meaningfully to the industry of translation? Uh, and again, it's it's simply, I mean, Luditism doesn't work. It's, it's, it's useless to say, well, look, we should regulate automating, uh, automating tools or that translators that use those tools should be shamed or, you know, the, these are just, very impotent ways of reacting to the situation, one should first fully accept that at a certain point in time, machine translation will surpass humans if we have a certain concept of what nonfiction translation ought to look like. Um, and the major task for humans is to update our concept of what a translation is and then to redefine or make precise what a contribution from the human side looks like, and then just give all the other stuff to machines. And we should be grateful that we can focus on truly human uh, tasks within translation. 
instead of hating on machines or shaming people who use it, etc. Do you think this is true for other areas besides translation, like for art, for example, which also came up in the in the chat, machine generated art? I know um, a musician I like a lot, Ben Jordan, who also performs under the name of Flashbulb. He's done work on machine generated music. Is there a similar reasoning in your view that we should acknowledge and not try to fight against the machine ability to do good work areas traditionally considered domains of human self-expression. Mm. And again, this question of concern, is there any worry that there will be no area left? Because your, your answer right now left some opening for what the human can do with the machines as their tools or as their companions, as their friends, as their co-creators, whatever the right way of seeing that would be. But is there a worry that there will be no more room left for the human spirit or rather that we will see the human spirit never was anything other than this set of capturable algorithms across all the fields of importance to us? Yeah, the last point you made is very important and worth taking seriously. Uh, I broadly agree with this idea that what we're discovering today has implications for what people in the past uh, have thought about our human experience. Um, and yes, I agree that, for example, uh, in music, when maybe not in modern music, but certainly in traditional forms of music, like traditional Irish music or traditional Japanese music or uh, 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 traditional Greek music, etc. Uh, there was an understanding that there was an element of the divine that goes into the act of creating and performing music. Um, but there is a total disillusionment uh, of this. Uh, forgot who it was, but there's a there's a sociologist who actually talks about this in detail, the, the disenchantment of the world. Um, and machines have contributed in a major way to disenchanting the world by emulating what humans do, and in some cases, surpassing humans uh, in very significant ways. Um, and my general advice for those who are struggling with the question of automation is first to fully accept it. Um, it's, I mean, history shows that it's just futile to fight against te technology that tries to emulate human activity. Um, a much more productive way to approach this is to redefine what that task uh, looks like for human beings in the wake of automation. Um, so again, I can only speak from the point of view of translator because I don't have any experience with other areas, but in translation, you can understand translation as a function where the input is the source text and the function gives the rules of transformation for substituting those symbols with symbols in the target language. And then the output is the target language. Uh, and the majority of natural language processing research goes into developing this function so that the output becomes something that humans accept. So it's essentially like just one big Turing test uh, in translation. And uh, people who think that this is a threat 
are stuck with a certain idea of what an acceptable translation should look like. Because they're stuck with what the output should look like, they panic when a machine can produce that output because by definition, if you think the output is the only way it, a text should be translated, and if a machine can do it, then there's no nothing else that a human translator can do, just by definition. Um, but then that gives you the clue. I mean, the task then is to ask the question, well, are there other outputs that have traditionally been considered inappropriate or wrong uh, that we can actually start accepting as tr uh, proper translations in their own right? Well, if we want to go that way, then we have to articulate why these other styles or other outputs are also acceptable. Uh, and once we articulate that, then the next task becomes, well, given that there are, let's say, five or 10 different ways of translating a given book, and all of those can be defended, why am I translating it in this way as opposed to that? Uh, so these are the questions. Um, and again, think, you know, arguments in the form of, well, I'm translating this book in this creative way because machines can't do this yet is a very poor and very kind of temporary solution because machines will eventually be able to translate in different styles. So if your argument is that machines can cannot do it, therefore I'm doing it, then uh, it's just a matter of time before that argument's shelf life just you know, expires. Uh, so the truly interesting part is to justify the choice of uh, output uh, in a way that is in some sense independent of whether a machine can emulate uh, your task or not. I, I, this is a very abstract way of putting it, so I don't know if it's clear enough, but um, that would be my general orientation on this issue. One question on the automation issue, I'm just wondering because you have translated Andrew Yang into Japanese, is that correct? Or yeah. And automation was one of his big issues mm -hmm. on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. Do you see the specific political issue of automation that he treated and his solution as universal basic income as applicable to these creative domains as well? Do you think there's a place for policies that support creative human self-expression in areas where there's mm. the improvement of automation technologies? Yeah, and uh, the, the issue is uh, treated in some detail in Andrew's book, the, the War on Normal People, which I highly recommend if uh, anybody hasn't read it yet. Um, and just to note, neither Andrew nor myself think that basic income is a solution to automation. Because as critics rightly point out, automation is much more than just losing one's you know, uh, means of putting bread on the table. Uh, it's, I mean, unemployment or the automation of ho whole areas of human activity uh, leads to not only the loss of income, but displacement in all senses of the term. And this is how Andrew defines the problem too. He calls it the great displacement, losing one's place in the world, essentially. Um, so basic income is just 
addressing a very particular aspect of the great displacement, which is the loss of income. And Andrew's saying that the great displacement is difficult enough for humans to deal with, that we don't have to fight over income in addition to all the other problems we have. So let's at least give people money so that we can worry about other things like, okay, what does uh, post automation uh, life, uh, a, a post automation way of flourishing look uh, look like? I mean, we, ha we have no idea. Um, and the other, other, other kind of component of Andrew's vision is that Automation in, in a way is a good thing if there is a way to harness the value created by technology for uh, for the sake of human flourishing, as opposed to just enriching a few technologists or in the worst case, not even enriching anyone, just generating mountains of profit that is stashed in some bank account in a tax haven and simply not utilized, except maybe buying back the company's own shares as you know, as Apple is doing in, in Ireland, for example. Um, so if there is a system by which we can, as a society, uh, take the value created by technology and then give it to people in such a way that it provides an income floor, uh, in a way that removes a lot of uh, anxiety from the general population and therefore allows us to focus on more interesting and important questions like you know okay in translation in science in uh, manufacturing etc uh, etc et how do we redefine our roles vis-a-vis -vis the increasing capacity of machines to take on certain tasks um, so for everybody who's watching, I've been talking to Kenji Hayakawa. This is his book, Echo and Groa, Philosophical Dialogues. I strongly, strongly recommend it. Very thought-provoking, very good. Go get it. And Kenji, where else can people find you online? If you interact with people online, where else would you like people to be um, following your work and keeping up with what you're doing? Oh, um, so the main thing would be to follow me on Twitter. So it's Kenji underbar Hayakawa. Uh, I think Mike, yeah, Mike follows me. So if you go to Mike's account and go to his following, then you can find me. Uh, and uh, what I tweet, so I have a policy of just keeping my tweets to very specific things. Uh, and one is when I finish reading a book or when I'm reading an interesting book, uh, it's typically an English book, uh, I would tweet the book, but give a Japanese kind of summary of it. Uh, so it's interesting how, you know, if you're an English speaker, then you'll find the book to be potentially interesting because it's in English. Uh, but if you're a Japanese follower, uh, then uh, you'll, you'll potentially find the summary interesting uh, because it's written in Japanese, although the book itself might not be something that Japanese readers can read. Um, so if you're interested in just getting good book recommendations, uh, then uh, it might be just interesting to follow my account, see some, see what pops up. Uh, and then the other thing I tweet uh, is visual art. 
so I don't know if you are familiar, but in Twitter, there's a whole community of artists, mainly photographers, but also painters and digital artists who have kind of formed a network and they share each other's visual art on Twitter. Uh, what's interesting about their movement is that instead of seeing the features of Twitter as an impediment, so for example, Traditionally, maybe artists would feel, well, you know, if my, you know, great painting or my amazing photograph is presented in this small box that just appears on someone's feed, uh, it's demeaning or it it fails to capture what the work is, etc. Like this was the traditional approach, but then these visual artists actually see the smallness and the ephemeral nature of tweets to be symbiotic to what they're trying to do with visual art. So I share works by these artists who use Twitter in this very symbiotic and affirmative way. Um, so yeah, if you, if you follow me, you'll get maybe three tweets or four tweets a day, one about a book and then two to three pieces of visual art. Uh, and so yeah, if that's something you're interested, then uh, yeah, follow me. Great. And if people search for you, I know there are some essays of yours, academic works on Collingwood and on the translation of Hegel. So you, everybody should go have a look at what you've written, what you're writing, what you're tweeting. Kenji, it's been my real pleasure to talk to you, to have you on the channel. I am eternally grateful that we had the chance to meet at the University of British Columbia. I love your book. I love talking with you. Guys, read Kenji, follow Kenji, and think about what he had to say in our conversation today. There's so much here that is, as Groa said about his dreams, an invitation to think. So Kenji, thanks so much. And everybody, see you on the next program. Thanks, Mike.